Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned J. Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other realms of popular culture. As always, I'm here in the taproom with my co-host and our head brewer, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Oh, I thought I was going to get a different language. Hello. Hola. <laughs> Hello, Jonathan. <laughs> yes. Our first guest co-founded Cerebral Brewing in the Bluebird District of Denver, Colorado, operating in one of the country's craft beer meccas. He has been able to build a huge following of devoted fans by, as their slogan states, taking a scientific approach to beer. His brewery attracts beer tourists and locals alike. Earlier this month, Cerebral won a gold medal at the Great American Beer Festival. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Sean Buckin. How are you doing, man? Good, how are you? Not too bad. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Um, Thanks for having me. So, all right. First, as we always do on this show, take us back to the beginning. When did you first discover craft beer? And was there a beer that sparked the flame, so to speak, for you? Yeah. Um, so I guess it, it kind of came down to my decision to uh, come to Colorado for grad school. So I grew up in Ohio, and you know, there's there's a lot of great breweries in Ohio, but I didn't really have any um, any connection to any of them. I've, I had some some great lakes. I think in college we would uh, splurge on Killian's Irish Red when we actually had some fresh student loan money. Um, but I don't think I really appreciated any of it at that moment, but, uh, moving out here for, for grad school, I had a a lot of, uh, classmates from the Pacific Northwest that introduced me to IPA. And honestly, immediately I was not a fan. Um, bitter beer. Yeah, it was a little bit, it was a little bit too aggressive for me. Right. Uh, so I honestly, the first beer that really got me, um, kind of into beer was Alaskan Amber. Uh, and then it was like just little stepping stones from there. Um, I remember, you know, having, having, I don't remember which beer it was, but like my first, uh, first Saison was like pretty eye opening. Um, okay. yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was just a, a, a bunch of different beers along the way. I think, uh, Vine Street pub, not too far from us actually was, was one of the first IPAs that I really grew to appreciate. Uh, I think they do a great job of of producing some uh, some of the English style IPAs that aren't very popular right now, but um, they're yeah, still was... still great classic beers. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, did, when did you get into home brewing? Um, after graduating uh, for my wedding, a few friends actually pulled together and bought me a homebrew equipment. Oh, nice! Um, so I was doing that at home in I'd say that was probably two thousand. Uh, 12 that I started doing it. Okay. Uh, so it was only three years of homebrewing before we opened. What did you, uh, I, what, what was your first beer that you brewed on your homebrew system? Uh, it was a boxed amber kit that came with it. How was it? Uh, How did it turn out? <laughs> not good. Uh, not great, but our, uh, I, it's funny. Our, our realtor that ended up getting us to space, uh, he had a, some sort of, I don't know if it was a party for a Broncos game or something, but he had a party at his house and I brought, a six pack of it. And I, I didn't want, like, I wanted to share it, but I also didn't want to talk about it with anybody. Right. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was like, kind of, kind of proud that I made it, but I, I knew the quality wasn't, uh, wasn't really up to par, but, um, I don't know. He, he always remembers that. I have a few people that, that I think still tell me that it was good to this day, but I know it was not. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good friend, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, giving you the soft blow there. I mean, and then still kind of pepping you up. What, um, yeah. So along the homebrew lines, when did you realize that you had the possibility or even the idea of opening cerebral? When did that come along? Yeah, it was, uh, I got into all grain pretty quickly. I think like most people that go from homebrewing to pro brewing, uh, we probably kind of share that trait of diving deep into hobbies very quickly. Uh, my wife always jokes that I, I find very expensive side hobbies. Wait, um, wait uh, that, that's me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't know. I just got so deep into it that it was, it was becoming, 
I don't know, like I was brewing more than I could even distribute to my friends at the moment. Um, and I watched a few, we were really close with some other breweries that had launched uh, shortly before us from our homebrew club. So I watched our mutual friend get off the ground and, um, and you know, we had some brewers from our homebrew club that launched uh, Black Project and, and True and, and a lot of the really important breweries in the Denver scene now. Right. Um, I watched get off the ground and, and kind of saw how they did it from the outside. Like, um, and it really just made it seem possible to the point where we started having the conversation about it. And I don't know where the pivotal moment was where we really started, but it was just a lot of little things like I'm going to take a business plan class and build a business plan for a brewery. And then why don't we just pitch it to a bank? Oh, wait, we have, we have funding. Uh, then we found a location that just kind of, just kind of snowballed from there. That's awesome. Can you talk to us about the initial brewing setup you had at when you guys first opened? Yeah, so we still have that today. It's a, a two-vessel, 10-barrel direct fire system from Portland Kettle Works. Uh, we opened with four 10-barrel tanks. And then pretty quickly after that, just kept adding um, really they're like 25-barrel tanks. So we have six 25s uh, on top of that. And um, it, yeah, I mean, that, that system has been great for us. It was really intuitive from a home brewer perspective because it is so manual. Um, we didn't really go for that much automation. Um, Sound it, like yeah, us. It was, it was a nice <laughs> step up. Like... Yeah. <laughs> um, how many barrels were you, like in that first year? How many barrels did you guys produce? And what, um, what are you guys yes. at now? We opened in November of 2015. So in our first full calendar year, we were, I think, just under 700 barrels in the first year. Okay. Uh, and right now we're on pace to do 2,800, Nice, which isn't a ton of beer in the grand scheme of things, but it's more than we should be producing at this space. Hey, listen, uh, you've, you've been in back. Oh, yeah. it's, it's pretty yeah. tight. Yeah. I mean, 20, 2,800 <laughs> barrels is still a lot of beer, brother. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it is a lot of beer. Yeah. So I, I know that you have a second location coming soon that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but can you describe the Bluebird District of Colfax Avenue in Denver where cerebral started yeah uh so really uh we're on we're on colfax uh we technically are right opposite on monroe street next to national jewish and it's this cool uh transition between city park to the north of us uh and congress park to the south which technically we're um members of so it's i don't know it's a fun really walkable area of denver it's a historic neighborhood there's a lot of fun small businesses. The Bluebird Theater is down the street, and that kind of is the heart of the Bluebird District. Um, but you're a lot of a lot of great like places to eat and drink, and um, a lot of friends that we've made in the neighborhood. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I've been there multiple times, obviously. So to me, I mean, it's a it's a great location. How did you come up with the name Cerebral? I, I'm guessing that it comes from your your stated goal to combine the scientific methodology with an artistic viewpoint to create, you know, create extremely drinkable beers. Uh, tell us, tell us more about it. Yeah. So we just kind of set out to, I don't know, we had, uh, through the business plan course that I took the Denver small business development center puts on, and then they have resources for you. Um, after you complete the plan and we sat down with one of their marketing people and essentially I think, uh, it just became the two of us, just bouncing ideas off of each other and not utilizing her very well, but it was just a good sounding board to get the conversation started for the name. And it just came down to, we wanted to really say that we were putting a lot of thought into everything that we were doing. Um, the other initial founder that's not with the company anymore. And I both had scientific backgrounds. Mine is a doctorate in physical therapy and he was a microbiologist. Uh, so we were, we were trying to, you know, access the scientific portion of our backgrounds, but also just, uh, I guess the academic part is what we were really trying to, to encapsulate. Nice. What, I mean, when you guys started, what were your initial beers that you guys started brewing? <laughs> uh, yeah. So we designed our, I designed our system to, to do mostly session beers, ironically, um, <laughs> which, okay. which our brewers right now, I think resent me for. Oh um, yes. Yeah. I, I understand that. I understand that move. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, it was, um, the, so we opened with our, our house IPA that we have now rare trait. It was very different back then, but it was, uh, 
it sounds funny now, but one of Denver's first hazy IPAs, uh, a few breweries beat us to it by a few weeks, but still like in that first wave, um, we muscle memory, our house pale ale, we had a brown ale and huh. oatmeal stout and a 2.8% Saison, which I later, uh, was told was illegal because the three, two laws existed uh, in Denver where uh. we weren't legally allowed to pour that. Um, but we did. And um, <laughs> they changed that law that law later, so now we can make sub three percent beer. Uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of that. I think we released a three percent goza shortly after that. Okay, nice, nice. Very so, seasonal for November. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. For the, for the listeners, let's just tell them that right now, what Cerebral has in their portfolio are bigger ABV. Well, right. I was going to get into stouts. that. Like, when did you guys transition to the idea of bringing in the fooders for fooder aging and yeah. hitting the home runs with the big Imperial stouts? Yeah, the stouts came first. We brewed um, our first batch of Herbie Monsters, honestly, within the first, I think it was within the first four months of us being open. So we knew we wanted to, to be in that space. Uh, I didn't fully understand how much we would be in that space until we released that beer. Uh, we, at one point, uh, I bought 10 oak barrels and that was our first order. And they sat, um, if you're familiar with our tap room yes. along the left hand row where the bright tanks are now. So you could see fully into the back. Uh, I had people talking to me or shouting questions at me while I was brewing because I was just, <laughs> it was very accessible. Um, so we, we filled those barrels and, and I think the first batch was in for just over a year. Uh, and we had no idea what we were in for. So they, you know, the first line we had around the building and it was it was kind of crazy um and you know we were really happy with how that beer turned out so we've obviously continued to push in that direction uh the fooders came after our first uh invite to mbcc in 2018 um i had some beers from threes and i had some beers from tired hands that were um very different takes on fooder fermented lager and yep. it was just something i was very inspired by and came home and we we bought some fooders and made it work you, you i mean you, you sound like us i mean we drew our inspiration from threes from threes yeah for yep. our yep. for our uh fooder age loggers as well i mean that's that's pretty awesome so we can explain to the listeners what a fooder is right. do you want to tell yes. our listeners yeah Sean? yeah yeah, yeah. So um we bought ours from fooder crafters they're located at, just outside of st louis missouri and they use uh, American white oak, and it's really just a very large barrel. Um, we have a 20 and 30 barrel um, that we have a chill plate in them, yes. and then we have two 15 barrels that are egg shaped for our mixed culture fermentation that have no cooling capacity. Um, so yeah, it's it's just uh, we have the standard format, so they're vertical, um, almost like a two to one aspect ratio, height to width, and um, just just built for uh, long-term aging of beer. The the egg-shaped ones; those aren't the the porous ceramic ones, are they? Uh, no, these ones, uh, the egg-shaped ones that we have are are like uh, I know which ones you're talking about. These yes. are more like an egg, just from the front view, uh, but from the side, they're very. Uh, I don't know. It looks. It's more like a squished egg. Yeah, on the front I, and the back. I remember visiting. I think it was uh, CBC Philly. We went to Tired Hands, and they actually had a. It wasn't, I don't think you would call it a fooder. So the cement but ones, it, I believe. Right, it was like a cement yeah. aging vessel for, for yeah, beer. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. that's, that's very interesting. But So yeah. o- October's been a very good month for Cerebral so far. I mean, earlier in the month, you guys won a gold medal in the chili beer category with Humo y Espejos con Fuego. With you guys. Right. With you. <laughs> <laughs> that was all you guys, but yeah, we'll, we'll take Right, it. yes. Uh, can you describe that beer and can you... And the people visiting you guys, can they still get it? Or is that like going to be an annual release or, or how is that beer going to be formatted? Yeah, I guess. So when we sat down um, to build the beer, we talked about, you know, we, we came up with the joint recipe for the, right. um, the BA stout base, pulling in some of the influence from you guys that you do in your approach and the same with ours. And then uh, when we came down to barrel sourcing, we got these really cool uh, make, what was it? Uh, Woodford Reserve does a master's collection every year, yep. and this one was a uh, chocolate malted rye, which 
I don't, I'm assuming you guys have used in your stouts. Yes, we use it amazing. quite a bit from Fireman. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a great malt and it was, it was really cool to see uh, a bourbon being made with it. So I immediately allocated those towards the, the beer that we made because it just seemed like it would go in that Mexican hot chocolate direction. Yes. Um, obviously, you never really know until you try it. Uh, and it, it worked out beautifully. I wish I could get those barrels year over year, but uh, it was a one-off. Right. Um, and then when we went to blend, we just sat down with the team and we had some of a different base in uh, one of our oatmeal stout bases in some mezcal reposado barrels that Ooh. brought this really unique, um, slightly smoky, slightly uh, honey-like character uh, that we blended into that beer. And then uh, hand-processed ancho and guajillo chilies i uh, got some mexican cacao nibs from our partners at cultura in denver uh some mexican vanilla beans and i think we also had agreed that day to throw some uh, cacao husks in the mash which Ooh, i think really right. yes, blended yes we did. Some really yep. yeah so it was a really cool uh like multiple layered chocolate approach to the beer um yeah I, I, we thought it tasted great and honestly it was just a crapshoot when we submitted that we had no idea what the chili beer category was like, <laughs> and we never thought right. we would win in that one because we typically don't brew that many chili beers. Right. Um, but yeah, it was it was like there were so many hands involved in that beer. It was it was really fun uh, to see that one to see that one win. But we do not have any more. We have some in the cellar. Um, I believe we're holding on to some for World Beer Cup to see if we want to enter that one or not oh, and nice. kind of play with it. But I think we only have a few a few cases okay. left. Okay. You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're speaking to Sean Buggin of Cerebral Brewing. So the other big news that you recently shared with the media was the acquisition of a building in the Aurora Arts District. It's, it's nearly 18,000 square foot facility with a 15-barrel brew house and eventually a large tap room with two event spaces. I read the plans is to keep the original location open, but move all production to the new facility. What will having this new space allow you to do that you aren't able to do now, you think? Yeah, the uh, we've been looking for the better part of two years for more space, and uh, I'm sure it's you know similar to Miami. It's it's tough. There isn't a lot out there. What is out there is very expensive. Yep. So we've been doing a lot of short-term rental um, off-site for a few years for our uh, some of our barrels, some of our dry goods, our extra tap room storage. Uh, we lease off-site cold storage across town right now because our cold room isn't big enough. So. The best thing that it does is some operational efficiency for us that we can centralize everything in one building. Um, we're going to keep the brew house at Monroe Street and just scale it down, maybe move some fermenters over to the new spots right. uh, and finally build that, that brew house that, you know, we need now, not the, not the, <laughs> not the session beer. Homebrew system. <laughs> yeah. Not the session beer scaled up homebrew system that right. uh, our guys are forced to work on now. And, one that's actually designed for the beers that we're making now. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Sosa should be used to a manual I know, system. I know. I know. Don't don't let yeah. him cry to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I know he's been doing well since he since he came out to uh, out to Denver and is working for you guys. Yeah, yeah, now. he's been doing great. So, do you guys plan to increase production by a jump, or are you going to try to stay around a certain barrelage? You think between the two locations. Yeah, we're going to try and, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know that we're going to cap ourselves with a specific number, but the number we kind of have in mind is uh, four to 6,000 total between the two. Um, we're going to scale down pretty significantly here just to keep things, you know, it's, it's essentially like a neighborhood brew pub and we're operating like a semi-production brewery out of it. So right. scaling that down, making it easier on the guys here and scaling up at the new spot over time. Uh, and then, you know, scaling as we need for that additional tap room when that comes online and anything else that we decide to do. Nice. More barrel program aging, you think? I mean, you, you think you're going to dump more into that as well over at the new spot? Yeah, we've been putting more, uh, quite a bit more over the past 16 months or so into barrel stock. So we're um, up from somewhere around 150 to just shy of 270, wow. I believe. Okay. Right now we do have about 40 of those are mixed culture sour. We're still actively scaling that program down and moving more towards the fooder stock with limited barrel influence. Uh, it's just easier for us to manage and, um, you know, sales on those, those styles are declining. So uh, just trying to find a, a good ground for that, but growing this the clean 
so, stout program. So, I, yeah, I, I got a good question for you. I've, I've talked yeah. to other, other brewers as well. And as you've brought up, the, I mean, the discussion has kind of been like, do you think the days of fresh stout is kind of waned and everybody's really just focusing on barrel-aged stout? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of in that discussion ourselves, how we handle it. We used to do a lot more fresh stouts, yep. but now that we are we have the, the barrel stock that we do now, the barrel-aged version is just better. Right, I agree. In, in almost, every, almost every way. Uh, so it's kind of, it's tough there. We still do um, a canned coffee stout that's around 10% that I want to keep uh, doing variations on. And I think we'll have some other beers that we do in that space, but most of our, nearly all of our innovation is going towards our Bar- barrel aging. Barrel aging, yeah. And yeah. so you are moving away from mixed culture, wild beers, and concentrating more on fooder aging. Do you believe that's kind of where everything is heading? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we, we bought the fooders and it's taken them, a little while to kind of really fully come online. I think we got our first turn of our Brett Saison in seven months. And now the second turn is ready in four months. Um, the same with the, we have one that's kind of a blend of Lambic cultures um, to for that, you know, Lambic inspired uh, beer that we're going to be blending with some oak barrels, but it's really, hopefully we'll have more blending stock from Fooder and some uh, barrel stock that we can accentuate or, or, you know, add and subtract characters from the, from the blend. But, it's always been a, a part of our uh, portfolio to do a lot of Brett and mixed culture beer. Uh, just think that we're, we're looking at like keeping that fairly stable and not growing that program significantly. Right. Just kind of keeping it on a level playing field and not growing it yeah. too much. Yeah. I feel yeah. that. I mean, we went through that kind of growing stage where we did it. It just didn't fit into our space at the current time. So we stopped doing it. But now that we have a new brewer that he wants to kind of get into it, but I want to keep it on a small level and keep it kind of small and quaint and, you know, boutique as far as that goes. Because yeah. I, I, I think that after discussing with Avery and, and other, you know, people that that kind of mixed culture style is not, is just not what it used to be. You know what I mean? Even though we all love it, it's just not to the consumers. I don't think it is what it used to be. So Denver is also the home of GABF, Great American Beer Festival, and a really sophisticated craft beer market. Is that in the back of your mind when you're creating new beers, like being in this environment? I mean, and having to constantly innovate all the time, you think? Yeah, it, it was definitely on our, our minds a lot more in the first year. Um, it was pretty intimidating opening up the year we did. A lot of the home brewers had stopped opening breweries, and then it had transitioned to a movement of, professional brewers uh, moving from um, very renowned local breweries and opening their own spot. Uh, so it was, it was tough and that weighed on us a lot in that first year, year and a half, really trying to figure out a voice for who we were and um, kind of didn't give myself permission to brew some styles just under the assumption that some people could do it better. Uh-huh. And, you know, to some extent that was true at the beginning. We had a lot to figure out. Um, but now I think, you know, kind of really coming into our own and, and having the confidence to, you know, like a uh, beer stops in town and I'm not, pro- I'm probably never going to make a traditional Hellas uh, <laughs> better than them. So I'm right. not going to, right. you know, we're going to do our own version of that and, and, it, and do that without, uh, without compromising. And we do a lot of different things that I'm really proud of. You know, I don't think the push to innovate comes from Denver specifically. It's just the industry as a whole, you know, to stay relevant right now, you need uh, to be always innovating, always yes. doing something, yes. but it's also yeah. what keeps it fun. I think if oh, we, yeah. if we lose that, it's, I, you know, I don't know what I do all day. No, I, I mean, I think if, if the innovation in the industry kind of leaves and we kind of go back to just brewing 10 or 12 different styles of beers, uh, I think it will have lost all of its heart. I mean, it constantly here, it, it is a push, but I think it's what kind of keeps you engaged every day trying to think, Hey, what can we make? new what is new what else you know what new fruits what new ingredients you know what new adjuncts can we throw in there you know i mean so i think it definitely keeps you on your toes and keeps it interesting and and, and exciting hey i want to thank you very much for coming on the show hopefully now that we're kind of getting back to normalcy here well i'm uh, sure we'll see you at pastry town yeah you're going to pastry town yeah yeah. Yeah, so yeah we'll see you there and then uh we are doing wake fest again next year in uh, beginning of march so We'll we'll expect you to come enjoy the sun down here in Miami, and we can brew another collab beer. So, Sounds uh, good. Not a cop buster. 
<laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thank you, brother. I appreciate yeah. it, man. Thank you for your time. Have a good day, man. Thank you, guys. Later. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Halloween is this weekend. It's one of our favorite holidays of the year at the brewery. We've had many of our favorite horror movies on in the tap room for weeks. Our next guests know a thing or two about horror films. Their company, Fuzz on the Lens Productions, has produced several independent films in the horror genre. Along with friend Stephen Deal Sala, this brother duo founded their company in 2016 in the borough of Staten Island in New York City. They quickly made a name for themselves with a viral social media sensation called The Staten Island Clown. They went on to create some award-winning films like Abnormal Attraction, Terrifier, and Penance Lane. They are not the Coen brothers. They are not the Farrelly brothers. They are the Levy brothers. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Michael Levy and Jason Levy. How are you guys doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Excited yeah. to be here and talking with you guys this morning. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, yeah. uh, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, we, Me and Marie are both very appreciative of you guys coming on. So, okay, who do your parents blame out of the two of you for go, you know, steering somebody into going into the film industry? My mom is actually to blame because my mom used to have a film camera in the house and she used to home film video. us a yeah, home video all the time. And me and Michael used to steal the camera because we used to see these movies on screen that we, that we were watching. And we were like, oh, we want to do that. So as little kids, instead of like, you know, people playing, people were playing Manhunt and things like right. that, me and Michael grabbed the camera on the weekends and grab all the neighborhood kids and we would film a movie for the weekend. And that's how we really started oh, getting that's into awesome. it. Yeah. That's and awesome. Yeah. And then it started to progress from there, and then it would, the rest was history. So how and when did Fuzz on the Lens get started? So like Jason mentioned before, that we started making movies at a very young age. And then what happened was we went to high school, and we were making you know little short films and things for our television studio there, WFBN-TV. And it became an ongoing joke after one incident where one of our friends was actually filming uh, a scene and he was recording and there was a fuzz on the lens, literally it's some kind of uh, dust particle or something. So he's turning around, he's blowing it. And this whole time, this is recording. And we're looking at, we're looking into the lens myself, Jason, actually our other partner of fuzz on the lens as well. It was there because we, we grew up friends uh, with him as well. And we're looking into the lens, like a bunch of schmucks, and finally, after maybe 20 minutes, we realized it wasn't a fuss on the lens. It was a smudge on the viewfinder on the other side of the camera. Ooh, okay. So okay. It became an ongoing joke. Make sure you check for the fuzz on the lens. And then eventually, you know, we, we decided when we were going to do this professionally that there was no better name for the three of us than fuzz on the lens. So, right. so I mean, we should actually say that fuzz on the lens offers a full menu of services. I mean, you guys do commercials, you do music videos. Why did you guys decide to start making horror films? Um, well, you know, we kind of fell into it. Uh, we love horror movies, first and foremost. I okay. think myself and Jason are, are really big fans of horror. And we also love comedy movies as well. So those two, and it's funny because those two are on the end of the spectrum, but yep. both of them are so important with timing and beats and moments. You know, you need a certain amount of beats to scare someone. And the same with going with making somebody laugh. Um, but a horror film in general is really a backdoor into the business. Uh, and doing bigger things. You know, think about all the people who got started making horror movies, right? You have uh, Johnny Depp, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, there's, yeah, right. so, yeah, there's so many people, so many great filmmakers that have started with horror. And the reason for that is you can make them for cheap. You can make them low budget. They have an incredible fan base that is really, really connected to the genre. And again, it, it's a love for us too. You know, it's really, really fun. And we kind of, we kind of just fell into it. And, you know, we became somewhat successful with, terrifier and it just can kind of continue that momentum maria and myself are also very much horror film addicts i mean maria loves scary movies i mean what (laughs) would you guys say is your your favorite kind of genre of of horror films uh i would i would go with uh i mean the slasher films you know you get those one iconic characters and that that those are what audiences really attract to um my favorite horror movie in the last 10 years though was uh the conjuring I enjoyed that a lot. I thought it was really well done. I thought the shots were really well. Even though it's not a slasher film, it had that. It, it, it was the one movie that you actually, yeah, you, that you actually sat back and you're like, wow, this, this scared the crap out of me. This is crazy. Like the, the hair on your skin kind of stands up, you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. I, would, I would agree with Jason in the sense of, um, 
grew up really lo- loving slashers, like the, the tradition, the Halloweens, the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the Jasons, the things like that. Um, but then obviously it took a shift to found footage stuff and then to paranormal stuff. And I, I do agree that I think Conjuring was one of the, one of the first and, and second were two of the most uh, scariest horror films, I think, that were done at that time within the last 10 to 12 years. Um, but, you know, I love all types of horror. It's all, it's all a lot of fun. It just depends what you're in the mood for. What was the idea behind the Staten Island Clown? How did yeah. you guys feel when it started receiving mainstream like media coverage from BuzzFeed, the New York Post, and other outlets you know, around the world? It was definitely surreal. Um, I don't think we understood what the term viral really meant until this happened. You know, we figured putting the clown out there, because we wanted to change the narrative of what was going on. And this is obviously all pre-COVID, so right. we really want to change the narrative now. But back then, especially around here, there was a lot of drug overdoses and horrible, horrible things in the news. So we said, what if we kind of infiltrate that system and put something out there that can create a buzz that can be kind of fun and mysterious and get people thinking like, who is this clown? What's going on? And, and, and really create a stir in, you know, our society, our little community. And like I said, it, it kind of went from, we figured, all right, maybe in three months, somebody will recognize it. And maybe we could talk about it. It'll be a slow burn. But after three days, this thing exploded into something that we couldn't believe. BuzzFeed picked it up and, and Reddit picked it up, and then it was just off to the races. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of that was kind of putting something out there to entertain, trying to change the narrative, showing that we can, we can cause a stir in the world. And then obviously it was, you know, also promotion for our company and our upcoming film, too, that it kind of stifled into, which at that time we were making a movie called Abnormal Attraction. So it was all kind of linked in together. But when we were doing it, right, Jason, we sat down and we were trying to figure out what to put out there. And, you know, we were discussing Grim Reaper, Skeleton, something dark. But, you know, we kept coming back to Clown. And the reason for that is there are so many people that have strong opinions for them. They either love them or they hate them. So they could just do it themselves. They they let the thing explode themselves because they're talking about it. Yeah. I mean, people have like, uh, I mean, you know, I watched the video and, and it is actually there is an actual love hate for clowns and i mean oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm in my 40s i grew up in, in in the 80s so i remember the original it you know as a kid and then uh killer clowns from outer space that's one of my favorite you movies. know what i mean it was kind of a comedy <laughs> horror but still like it's this love hate with the clowns so people freak out with clowns and it's uh, it, i think it was a brilliant move and it was funny because me and Michael would be sitting home watching the news and it would be on every major <laughs> news station. We're sitting there laughing. And there would be people who were like, yeah, I saw him over there. He was buying a bagel at the store. And I was like, like were That's we out that day? And they were like, no. It was just like people. But everyone was getting involved. It was bringing the Staten Island community together, but it was bringing everybody together because everyone wanted to find out who the heck this guy was. That's amazing. Yeah. And they wanted to be a part of it, which was cool. But hearing yeah. the stories about who saw him where, it was really funny. And then, obviously, the copycat started happening. Of course. And that was, that was interesting, too. Yeah. So, so tell us a little about your creative process. I mean, do one of you have an idea and share it with the other two, or you just build from there? Or do you sit in rooms and kind of pitch each other ideas? You know, like, how, how does this go? I think it starts more with, like, we sit in a room and we start pitching ideas. We have, like, a, a, a story that we want to tell. And then some, it will just be like spitballing. We'll write it up on the board. We'll write a bunch of characters on the board. And then we just go on from there. And then we start flushing out the ideas. And then sometimes somebody would step out. The other two would talk. And then when the next person comes in, they'll have a fresher take on it. And, you know, usually, and that's usually a little bit later in the process, too, when right. we actually are, are spitballing together. But a lot of times when the initial idea comes out, we're, we're usually, because the three of us are always together, whether we're working, hanging out, you know, because we're friends, too. And obviously me and Jason, we're, we're brothers, but then traveling to conventions. So we could just be sitting in the car and all of a sudden the situation happens. And then we're big on what if this then happens? What if that Right. And then we start acting it out. We start getting silly. And some half the time, those ideas never see the light of the day, you know. But sometimes you, you kind of strike something, and it, and it really piques all three of our interests. And then you kind of just run with it and go from there. I do have to ask, of course, because this is the beer hour. In these uh, pitch meetings, do you guys you guys get beer that in the room while you're uh, you throwing these pitches around, or uh, how does that of normally? Of course, go? I mean we're we're Irish. We're Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. That's okay. When the stories get more interesting. Exactly. That's, when the, that's when the ideas really start getting bizarre. Is when the beer is involved. <laughs> yeah. So we yeah, have, we have a couple of beers. We usually we usually like. You know, there's a there's a flagship brewery that's here on Staten Island. It's a local brewery. Uh, we'll pick up a lot of those. Um, actually, our friend uh, Brian Quinn 
from the Impractical Jokers, he, he started up an old um, beer that was around a long time ago called Rumson and Horman. And he actually started that. So we, we were drinking that a little bit when we were doing our next film stream because we actually got a, a sponsorship with them to use the beer in the film. Nice. Um, Sierra Nevada, the Pale Ale. Uh, I like, I've also liked, um, what you would call it? Uh, uh, there was this beer. I don't think they make it anymore, but it was really cool for like now time, like the fall. Jacko Travelers, um, huh. uh, like a, it's it's like like a pumpkin ship. Nice, yes, yeah, yeah, shipyard, yeah. Really enjoyed that, but they stopped. They stopped making it. So you guys are gonna. I think we're we actually got to go to New York. Uh, what is that? November, mid November, tenth through the fourteenth. Uh, we're going there for other halves. Uh, Pastry Town, which is a beer fest in Brooklyn, okay. oh, though. Awesome. So you guys, you guys will have to come by and check it out. What's, yeah, awesome. That's what, great. What's the name of the local brewery in Staten Island? Flagship. It's called the Flagship. Okay. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, Flagship. How do you guys typically go about financing your film projects? It's different every time. You know, a lot of times it's it's you make the main thing is you make a pitch deck, and you have your idea, you right. have your your projected cast that you're looking to get, you have what your budget is, and then you have similar films that are kind of in that what kind of money they made, and you know whatever. Um, Usually the people that we end up meeting is a lot of uh, from previous networking to where we're at different events or, it's, you know, someone recommends us to talk to this person who's interested in the film. Sometimes there are other investors that have invested in our other projects that come back, obviously. Um, sometimes it's even just as simple as family and friends um, or friends of friends that are interested and, and, you know, want to get involved. It's just like anything else, you know, you got to look at film, even though it's, something that everyone looks at is kind of unattainable. It's really not. It's like any other business, like investing in real estate, investing in stocks, investing in a restaurant, you know, it's a, it's a high risk, but it's also a high reward. And, you know, we're very upfront with the way we talk to everyone. And then, you know, we kind of explain the whole situation to them. And then if they feel like coming on board, great. We work out a deal. Um, and, and if not, you know, maybe next time. And then also there's the crowdfunding stuff too, which I usually like doing later. A lot of people like starting with that to try to get a little bit of money in. I like going private first. We like doing that getting most of the budget in place and then going to the crowdfunding for the, the last bit of it. And what's good about that is it, it not only helps you get the money that you need, it also you're able to include people like that love movies, like horror fans, an, an example, like we're running Indiegogo right now the last week for this film stream. And we're given horror fans that normally wouldn't have a chance to be a part of a film with Jeffrey Combs, Danielle Harris, uh, oh, wow. Dean Wallace, Tony Todd. And we're inviting them in that they could be producers. They could be in a scene, you know, they could get the, um, their name in the movie, or just a DVD or Blu-ray or special thanks in the credits. So that's something that we like to do at the end, just to offer a chance for you know good people to come on board and feel connected to a part of it. And it's also great marketing, too, doing it that way. We're talking to filmmakers Jason and Michael Levy. I would imagine that really in the film industry, like distribution is is like the biggest hurdle. I mean, it is for us as well. <laughs> you know, but you know, back in 1999, you know, the Blair Witch Project, for example, was an independent film supernatural horror film you know that they where did they uh it was um i think it was a sundance film festival that they showed it at and then they got distribution after that i mean is that kind of the name of the game like you know make the film pitch it you know at festivals and hope that you know someone breaks and, and you get this widespread distribution deal right yeah i mean that's just yeah that's the start of it i mean you can that's one way of doing it also another way of doing it too is, is self-distributing i know um there's many avenues to do it it's just what you prefer but um, distribution, usually you would take it to a film festival um, and the people would be there. That's, that's a big film festivals are big because when you want to network with each other and you network with other filmmakers, you network with distribution companies. And then that's usually where you get your, you know, you do your deals and stuff like that. Yeah. And then there's film, there's film markets, too, right. that you could bring your film to. And then if you're really lucky, obviously, and if you have a track record of good movies, you know, there's distribution companies that might just pick it up on spec where they're like, okay, you're making the movie. We know you have this amount of this kind of actors in it. We know the quality of your work. We're just going to take it anyway. I always advise not to do that because I think that if you truly believe in yourself and you think your product is going to be good, you bank on yourself because you can right. end up getting more. But it could right. also hurt you too. You, right. you know, they could end up seeing it and be like, eh, it wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. So <laughs> you really have to I feel it. Yeah. There's no you know, book that says this is exactly how you have to do it. I mean, this business is a business that was created in kind of an anti-business way, right? Right. So even though it is a business, there's so many different ways you could kind of go about it and do it because it's just so, so open-ended. 
Right. And especially now it's easier to self distribute because right. everything's digital now. Right. So yeah. you can get it on you can get it on iTunes by yourself, you can get it on Amazon by yourself, you can do these things and you can cut out the middleman and you can do it all right. yourself. I mean but it's just do you have that reach that they have? I, I got a question for you. That that's a great question that you guys kind of brought up. Nowadays in the film industry, you know, especially when the pandemic hit, a lot of this stuff went direct to consumer. I mean, I know it kind of hurt a lot of like, you know, the movie theaters and stuff like that. What is your guys's take being like independent filmmakers and stuff like that? What is your guys's take on that direct to consumer route now? I think it's fantastic to direct because for the filmmaker to be in direct contact with the consumer, I mean, there's just it just takes away so many barriers and so many levels of things that can kind of get missed. You know what I mean? Like when there's too many hands in the pot, right. That's where, you know, and usually the filmmaker is the one who gets screwed. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yes. It kind of goes to Joe and Schmo and Larry and Curly, and then you get whatever's left. If there is anything, right. and you're the one who poured your you know, heart and soul into it. However, I still think it's not there a hundred percent. I think self-distribution is where it's going. I think that is great to do. But again, like Jason said, it's just how far can your barrier go? How far can your reach, your circle go? Whereas like you can't even talk to Netflix on your own for self-distribution because they have their buddies, they have their right. links. It's like, I, I help you, you help me, we feed each other. <laughs> so there's certain things that you have to go through. If those barriers and those uh, walls are, can come down somehow, um, that's where it would be the most beneficial. But with that being said, I think movie theaters now are in a great position to, because of COVID, to talk directly to the filmmakers themselves and not the studios of independent, really good independent films because they're hurting, you know, and they should be able to get some of these uh, films in there into their studios that are maybe local or that are, uh, you know, somewhat local and try to get them shown, try to make some money that way. Because again, even though, yeah, you're going to make more money on the Avengers and stuff. No one's going, (laughs) no one's, no one's really going to the movies and it's like, no, no. Right. And that's why they yeah, that's why they keep trying to make it more of an event when you go to the movies, like a date night now. That's why they're doing dine in movie theaters. But it's great, like Michael said, for the independent because how many people when you were kids want to see a movie your movie on the big screen? Like that was the goal, that was the dream, that was everything. So now when me and Michael are sitting there and we say, Wow, COVID now gave us the opportunity now that you can go to these these small independent theaters or maybe big theaters and say, Hey, listen, I got a movie, can you show it, you know, uh, for three or four weekends? And you can do it that way. And now you can have your movie on the big screen. And now it reaches even more of an audience because some people do like still going to the movies. I know I do. Oh, yeah. I, I still love going to the movies. It's, it's an event. You, who, who doesn't want to have a popcorn and watch a movie on a big screen and relax in the reclining chairs now? Exactly. I mean, but that's like the goal. That's the dream. And now I think it's more obtainable, which is great. Who's some of the talent, uh, like some of the actors that have appeared in your films that horror fans would recognize? Um, okay, so we have... We had Malcolm McDowell in one of our films. Uh, he obviously Clockwork Orange, Coagula. He was yes. in Rob Zombie's Halloween. He was also in Entourage as Sloane's dad. Then we had <laughs> Tyler Maine, who played um, Michael Myers in Rob Zombie's Halloween. He's also in Sabretooth. I'm going through the Halloween people first. Right. <laughs> we had Scout Taylor Compton, who was in Rob Zombie's Halloween as Laurie Strode. Then we had uh, Leslie Easterbrook from Police Academy. Jeffrey Combs Ooh. from Reanimator. Danielle Harris from Halloween, Tony Todd from Candyman, Mark Holton is a great one, who a lot of people might not know his name, but he was Ozzy in Leprechaun, Francis in Kiwi's Big Adventure, okay. he was in Teen Wolf, we have Tim Reed from the original Stephen King's It, he was Ooh. Mike Hanlon, um, Felissa Rose uh, from oh. Sleepaway Camp, Dave Sheridan from uh, Scary, Scary Movie, Movie, Officer Doofy, um, <laughs> <laughs> he was great, Ron Jeremy. Ooh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Horror (laughs) fans will know who that is. D. D Wallace uh, Uh, is in our film as well. Terry Alexander from Day of the Dead. David Howard Thornton from Terrifier. I mean, we've worked with some incredible people. And most of those people I named, not all of them, but most of them that I named, are all in the new movie we're doing now called Stream. Nice. Yeah, so so that's what we're working on right now. We shot 90% of the movie, and like I said earlier, we have an Indiegogo campaign for anybody to get involved. Uh, nice. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, what, what projects are you working on now that, that you're excited about? Tell us a little bit about so, Stream. Yeah, so, so Stream is something we're really, really excited, excited about, and we have a whole franchise mapped out. It's a modern horror film. We wanted to take the slasher film and modernize it and bring it into the 21st century. You know, a lot of times, like we were just talking about Halloween Kills, we do love it, right? We love seeing Michael Myers, right. but I think the horror community is yearning for something fresh and something new and some kind of different icon we can all kind of latch on to, right? Yep. We, did it with, we did it with Terrifier, and that's doing its thing, but we wanted to do it in a, in a bigger kind of scale 
and bring technology into the into the world because horror right you guys know you guys are horror fans it always kind of taps into our safe spaces psycho did it with the shower halloween did it with the neighborhood nightmare down the street did it with our dreams jaws did it with a day at the beach it's taking those safe spaces and exploiting them so what's now that everyone kind of feels safe about but they have a, a kind of a i don't know but i still use it every day the the phones, phones, the phones, right? phones. yes exactly yes so it's taking that and exploiting it and taking those thoughts that we do have in the back of our heads and bringing them to the front and bringing them to light so that's what stream deals with um, in the grand scheme of things, but it also, again, deals with, uh, we have slashers in it, and it's this really, really cool, innovative way, we think, that you can have a franchise without it getting stale. And we have a ton, like I just mentioned, a lot of them, horror icons. Right. And we're running an Indiegogo campaign last seven days for anybody who wants to get involved and contribute. They're a part of the team, and they can join us and help us get this movie to the finish line. Nice. Right. So- and we also wanted to come up with, a, with an iconic look and the character, so we wanted to go in depth because Halloween, Michael Myers, if you look at it, it was actually made out of a William Shatner mask. Uh, they paid it. Right. So yes. What we wanted to do is we wanted to do complete opposite. So when we designed our mask, if you go on the Indiegogo, we have instead of him just being plain faced, we have the mask with a with a wide grin, and each of these masks light up different colors Ooh. as a LED eyes. LED eyes, and it's like a PS4 remote. So like if you're player one, and we call them players, we don't call them killers, but we call them right. players. It's like kind of tie in that video game world. Oh too. boy! Um, and instead of being white, the mask is is carbon fiber black. Right. Right. You know, so we did some opposite things to try to create our own unique uh, serial killer look. Nice. So definitely people need to go to the Indiegogo and help get this across the finish line. But where else can the listeners find your films? So you can see Abnormal Attraction is a film we just we did. Uh, that was one with Malcolm McDowell and another one, Penance Lane, with Tyler Maine. And, and that can be found on Amazon, on Tubi. Um, Redbox Digital, uh, PlayStation, Xbox, all those streaming platforms, iTunes. Then Terrifier, which uh, was on Netflix for about two years, but it, the contract just ran out, so it's no longer on Netflix, but that is on Tubi now, I think, is the main place to find that one. A lot of horror fans would love that. It's, it's really, really got some amazing practical kills. The director, Damien Leone, uh, is, I think, like the new Tom Savini and Wes Craven put into one. He's absolutely unbelievable, and I'm honored to have produced and been a part of that, all, both of us, that project. Um, so you could find mostly those things. If you follow us on, on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, it's Fuzz on the Lens Productions. You could find us that way, and then you could kind of go from there. Website's fuzzonthelens.com. Um, so there's, there's plenty of ways that you could, you could find us and see our films. On nice, nice. I got a question. As horror film producers, what are the key components of a great horror film? I think uh, the kills are one. Right. I think, you know, you got to have creative and cool kills. Now, they don't have to be gory. They don't have to be bloody. You know, they can be, but they don't have to be. I just think suspense is, is really, really key and important. You need to have suspense. And you need, I like, and this is from a carpenter thing, it's I love atmosphere, mood. I think that is extremely important because if you have mood and you have atmosphere, you've already put them in the setting, right? You've already put them to feel creepy or to feel eerie or to feel, you know what I mean? Like there's tension. So I think those are, are a lot of the key components to a horror film. And then I think just a good iconic looking, if it's a slasher killer, that is so important. If you don't have a good looking killer or someone that's kind of cool, like a Michael Myers or a Freddie or a Jason, and there's a lot of movies that fall flat on that. I think yes. your movie's going to fall flat. That is so key in the visual aesthetics of, of having a, a killer. And then if it's a ghost movie, again, it's just cool, creepy things that are going on. Right. It's that eeriness. It's that cinematography, that creeping slow, slowly forward. And score, boom. Yeah, your music, the music, the that. music, yeah. Score is, score is yeah. big. And a lot, of, a lot from what when we go to these cons, a lot of things is that these new horror movies, these Hollywood power movies are doing – is too much CGI. Yes. Sometimes you just got to keep it simple, stupid. Always keep it simple, always. So practical effects, I know it takes a lot more, it takes longer, but it, that's what they want. They love that 80s type, especially when we did it with Terrifier. Well, 80s type art. I mean, I think because people see so much CGI, it doesn't become believable at some point. So when, right, it takes you completely out of the picture. So like if, it's too much animated stuff, then it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. But, like, if there's still some realness to it, comes like a, a real body being there, I think it's more terrifying than some computer-generated image. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Great. What are your top five all-time classic horror films that everybody should be watching this weekend? 
I have to throw one in there that you brought one up that you have one of the actors from Reanimator. I love that movie. That's a great classic film. But what would be your guys' top five films to watch this weekend to scare the crap out of, you know, some good horror going? <laughs> I would say for me, um, you know, you got to always watch the original Halloween. There's just something yes. about it that's, you know, that's creepy. The soundtrack is unbelievable. It just creates that mood. Um, I, I also like family horror movies, too. It doesn't have to just be that. Hocus Pocus is always a big one, always yes. a favorite one of yeah. mine. Right? I really, that's always one that you can go out. If you're having a time with the family, you want to sit down and you don't want to watch. You Halloween want to, Town. You know, before the kids go to bed, watch yes. Hocus Pocus or Halloween Town. And then you get into your horror, your slashers, like right. uh, the original Stephen King's It. Yes. Uh, you can watch The Conjuring. You can watch all those things. Yeah, right. I definitely love watching, like Jason said, Halloween for sure. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Yes, I think is great, great one. one to watch. Great one. Yeah. I love that. I, as I mentioned, The Conjuring, I think, is a lot of fun. Um, uh, you know, Friday the 13th are, are cool, but I actually rather watch the streams than the Friday the 13th for me personally. Right. I, I enjoy watching, even though there's a little comedy in that. Um, you know, I think that's always a lot of fun. And then he, this is a different one that I, I try to always throw a unique one in every year rather than kind of the same stuff over and over again. And for some reason lately, I've been really enjoying totally separating myself from it. And this could be popular or unpopular, but Halloween three, okay. which I try to separate myself from the Halloween. So I hated Halloween three when I grew up, hated it. It was not Michael Myers. I didn't want to be bothered right. with that, it. Was that the one with like the, the TVs and stuff like yes, that? Yes, 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 right. And, if, and I went back and revisit that film and watched it as just, this is a movie. And I really, really enjoyed that film a lot with Tom Atkins. It's a fun movie. And then also the movie, I think it's uh, People Under the Stairs. Oh, uh, I, I love say, that movie. I, I do have to say, when October like 10th or 12th, you know, like when we're getting close within two weeks, every day I'm in the tap room, I'm playing horror films. Every day. Yeah, that's great. And, and, we, and we, good movie. You know, so I'm cut you off. Haunt, Haunt. Have you guys seen the movie Haunt? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. It came out in the last two years or something. Check out the movie Haunt. It's got Damien Maffei in it, and, and it's about these group of people who go to this haunted house, but they're really killing them off in the haunted house. So it's like it's, it's a really fun okay. kind of creepy, eerie movie. I liked it. I'm going to put it on today in the tap room. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you guys well, so thank much you guys for very being much. with this us. This has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. We really yeah, appreciate it. You. And if you ever come down to Miami, you got to. Or what? I mean, we're going visit. to New York. You should come to Pastry Town. Check us out, man. <laughs> For sure. Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh. We go to Florida all the time. We're, we're Tampa Bay Buck fans. Our oh, boy. Teams, oh, so. boy. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. definitely, hey, uh, we'll have Rocco reach out to you about maybe we can hook up while we're up there for Pastry Town. We appreciate your guys' uh, time. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Guys. Guys. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Sean Buchan, Michael Levy, Jason Levy, my co host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.